0: The biggest issue in data center land today, Chris, is power. As you know, our transmission infrastructure grids in the U.S. are, are aging. Most of the transmission was built in the Eisenhower era. So then here we are asking these transmission grids to deliver hundreds of megawatts of power to a 10-acre parcel. That's not what was envisioned 60 years ago. I don't think the United States has a generation issue. We're generating plenty of power. Whether it's hydro, solar, wind, or traditional, you know, coal-fired plants or nuclear plants, we know how to generate power. We just don't know how to move it and distribute it and transmit it in the right way. So that's why you see, you know, like what ERCOT's doing in Texas, redoing the entire, you know, transmission infrastructure grid. It's what you see in Dominion Resources. What's happening in Virginia? What's happening in California with with uh, PG and E and SoCal Edison having to dig their lines and build new lines. So. We're going through this renaissance per se of our transmission infrastructure, and it's just gonna take
1: time. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to FortCapitalLP.com. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. Let's just get started with how someone got into this business. You got into this at like the earliest of times when it was not really a thing. How did you find your way into the digital infrastructure world?
0: Well, like like all great stories, it's accidental, right? And so my journey began in 1994. I came out of business school and was super focused on buying distressed real estate. And at that point in time, the Resolution Trust Corp was unwinding, and there was a series of portfolios of distressed real estate that were being sold off. And the the real estate investment firm that I was working for, we went out and we bought tranches of these, you know, portfolios of assets. And one of the tranches of assets came with a series of what I would term Class B office buildings in the mid-Atlantics. And one of the office buildings was a tall building that happened to have a massive radio tower on top of it with a series of a bunch of antennas and we looked at the rent rolls and someone said well the rooftop's doing you know million a million dollars year in revenue and the rest of the building's doing like 2 million a year in revenue we said well that doesn't make any sense so we started looking at it and it turned out that there was this totally unknown white space of you know antenna real estate or rooftop real estate and it turned out that those antennas belonged to tv stations radio stations And these new things called cellular telephones. And we didn't understand how to negotiate. So we took this building out of bankruptcy, and these customers came at us and said, We want you to confirm our leases. Because, you know, in a bankruptcy process, you can wipe out the leases and start over again. And what I found out in that process is after doing a little research, I found out two things. One, once somebody puts an antenna location in a spot, it's really hard to move it. So you have great tension as a landlord with the tenant, which is that you can control kind of the outcome because of the amount of electronics and equipment they put into their space. It's really hard to pick all that stuff up and move it somewhere else. And if you have a really good location, you can't move it anywhere else. So we found that out. Second thing I found out was I didn't know anything about the actual technology. So I found a couple of guys that went to Wharton that did know something about it. And they were telling me about this thing called digital telephones. So at that point in time, the cellular telephones were analog which are like these huge bricks that you'd pick up and carry around and walk around with. They said, you don't get it. There's this whole new wave of digital technology coming. And these, you know, cellular phone companies are gonna need hundreds of thousands of locations called towers. And the light went off in the head and I had that kind of eureka moment, which was like, wait a second. You mean they're gonna need like 200,000 of these locations in the next five years? And these two guys I met were like, yeah, and we, we, you know, we, we did one of the startups, we built one of the first cellular telephone companies. I said, well, it strikes me that it might be better to be on the real estate side of the, of the trade here instead of owning the technology and, and building out the, the cellular phone networks. And so we all agreed, we got together, the three of us we wrote a business plan to create the first tower business in 1994. And just because accidentally I was a real estate guy and I bumped into a bunch of antenna leases, It changed my life forever, and so this thus began this thirty-year journey with you know digital real estate and digital infrastructure. In 1994, we built our first tower company. 1997, we built our first fiber optic cabling business, where we put high-speed internet in office buildings. And you know, 30 years later, we've owned and operated 50 different businesses around the world. You know, all myopically focused on digital infrastructure and digital real estate.
1: As it relates to those towers. One, you said there would need to be 200,000. How many exist today in America? Was 200,000 really what we needed or was that 1994 thinking?
0: That was 94 thinking. I think today there's over 350,000 tower locations in the US. So when we got started, there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood about 20,000 towers in the United States. So it's been a, you know, through three decades, there's been a lot of digital transformation. And to do that requires, of course, you know, more and more and more antenna locations. So right place, right time, good industry. And we're still growing because as you know, it's not just about 5G technology, it's about artificial intelligence, cloud computing, internet of things. There's so much going on in our sector today. And it's more, how should I say this, more cross-pollinized than ever because cellular networks talk to the cloud and the cloud talks to the fiber optic cabling and the fiber optic cabling comes back to a private 5G network for an enterprise. And more and more, a lot of this stuff is being software defined. And so the cloud sort of is the is the bond that ties it all together. But here we are working in these different verticals, you know, building out all this infrastructure to support the digital economy. It's pretty exciting. It's a big, big, big 13 to 14 trillion dollar marketplace now and 30 years ago it didn't exist
1: has defining where a cell tower should go back in 94 changed today when you're thinking about location based on all this cross pollinating or do the same kind of location metrics matter when you're looking to put a cell tower somewhere
0: i think i think probably three things have changed in the last you know 20 years one i would tell you that It's really difficult to go zone these things. Most community boards or city councils really don't want to see a cell tower. So visually they're not the most attractive things. So as you can imagine, from a zoning and planning perspective, nobody wants a cell tower in their backyard. So that makes it harder to build these things than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Even if you explain the public benefit and public safety and everyone, you know, everyone needs connectivity. At the end of the day, you know, the sort of moral minority shows up at a zoning board meeting, and 100 to 200 citizens out of you know maybe 20,000 show up and say, "We don't want to sell tower in our backyard," and so you can imagine, city councils listen to that stuff, right? So zoning has probably gotten tougher. I would say the second big change is that the location of the technology, the radiuses get smaller and smaller. So. It used to be cell towers were spaced, you know, sort of five miles apart. Then we got to 2G and it was three miles apart. Then we got to 3G and it was a mile and a half apart. 4G a mile apart, now in 5G, you know, they're less than a half a mile apart, the cell towers. So as the technology has improved, the radio propagation has gotten smaller and smaller. And so you need more and more towers, which is why you've seen the proliferation of these towers because at the end of the day, a radio spectrum wave travels in the air. And based on the speed of that radio frequency, that signal will drop off. And so then as it drops off, you need to build another tower so it hands off and you keep building, hence why it's called a cellular network. So as the density has gotten more intense, there's been more demand for more towers, which makes our business harder. Because if somebody says, I need a cell tower on the corner of State and Main, and there's no real estate available in state and Maine, and you got a difficult zoning board, it gets harder and harder. So density plays a big part of it. And then a third thing that's happened, which I think is very interesting is the height of the antennas, Chris, over time has come down. So 29 years ago, you'd see a cell tower and it's 300 feet tall. You know, 20 years ago, you'd see a cell tower and it's 150 feet tall. Five years ago, you see a tower and it's like 80 to 90 feet tall. And now in 5G, you're seeing antennas literally 25 to 30 feet off the ground, again, because of that density factor. So now we're seeing more of this technology proliferate, but we're seeing it at a lower height and the antennas are a little smaller and you can conceal it a little better. And so the game is changing. And now it's more about the ability to show up and deliver at scale. And that's what we're doing with our business days. We're, we're doing that here in the US, but we're doing it in Asia and Europe and, and just meeting the demands of our customers.
1: I love it. I I would assume the same folks that show up to zoning meetings, not wanting a cell tower are also disappointed when their internet speed or digital speed is not at tip top shape as well. It probably cuts both ways. Is it easier then to put cell towers, call it in New York city where everything is a dense building and you can kind of hide the tower on top of a building versus suburban locations where there's not a lot of height. And so they're going to be more visible.
0: So in the suburbs, we're building more pine trees and flagpoles and other types of really what I would call concealed infrastructure. It doesn't look great. I mean, you can kind of tell a cellular pine tree when you drive by one. But for some odd reason, this zoning board thinks that's a better look. And, And yeah, it does. It takes away the visual pollution. So we built cellular cactuses. We built cellular adobe huts. We built cellular palm trees, pine trees, flagpoles, church steeples. You name it, in the 29 years, I've concealed every kind of antenna you can think of. Now, New York City, it's interesting because in New York City, we're putting the antennas down at the street level. So we're not putting them up at 40 stories or 50 stories. What we do is we use this new technology called small cells. And small cells are basically a small antenna that we put on a street corner. We run the fiber underground, which carries the radio waves through optical light cabling. So we run that RF signal through optical light, we bring it up the utility pole or the traffic signal, and then you'll see a small antenna on top of it. And inside of that, we have a small radio and then it transmits that signal. The only problem with the small cell, Chris, is it only goes kind of one block in each direction. So in New York City, we're putting these small cells literally every other street corner. So we have a company that does that, one of the digital bridge businesses we own. It's called Extinet, and Extinet has over 4,000 small cell locations in New York City. We're the largest owner and operator of outdoor small cell infrastructure in New York, and that's how cellular networks and, and mobile networks work in New York City, is you've got to have access to that to that small cell technology. So there's different ways to build these networks now.
1: Okay, so is the business, I guess what I'd consider building spec, where you can look at the demographics, the population, the density, and go you clearly need cell service here, and then you build it? Or are the major carriers coming to you saying, hey, we want locations in these spaces, or is it a combination of both?
0: it's a combination of both. I think when we're in New York City, we know pretty much within every other street corner where the carriers are gonna need us. So being one of the two companies that has the New York City franchise agreement, to do that is really valuable. And You know, sometimes we are responding to a request from Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T, or sometimes we're going in on a spec basis. So for example, we have the small cell network at Madison Square Garden. So if you go to a New York Knicks basketball game or a New York Rangers baseball game, you're running on an extinet small cell network because there's no cell towers obviously in the garden. The garden today has over 400 different antennas in it. So the guest experience that the Dolans wanna promote is that they wanna make sure your phone works everywhere. They wanna make sure that, because to get in there, your ticket is now on your phone, you order your food on your phone, you order merch on your phone, and if you're logged into the, to the New York Knicks network, at certain points of the game, they may say, look, Julius Randall's shirt is on sale, go here to Concourse 3, and you get 20% off the shirt. The LA Dodgers are doing that by example. We have another company called Boingo that works with the Dodgers ownership group with security benefit. And we put in a completely neutral host network that controls the Dodgers VPN, their virtual private network. And so as you go to a Dodgers game and you, you enter that VPN, your phone has an option to click onto the Dodgers network. And once you're on that Dodger network, it's tickets, it's statistics, it's like interactive fan engagement with the players. It's really cool, it's a great guest experience and that's a private 5G network. But also on that network, again, you've got T-Mobile, AT&T and Verizon. So all the mobile carriers operate on that one common network, but the Dodgers you know, own it in combination with one of our companies and we're helping the Dodgers monetize you know, that guest experience through their phones. And I think it's pretty cool. I think we're just scratching the surface on how small cell infrastructure can impact you know the guest experience when you go to a sporting event. There's more coming
1: there, and whether it's small cell or a typical tower, does AT and sign a lease or a contract? And I'm assuming T-Mobile. Absolutely. It, it, what if it's yeah. like Boost Mobile or one of the smaller ones? Does everybody that wants to to benefit from that small cell or that tower have to sign? Is it a lease? Is it a contract? How's it structured?
0: It's a lease. It's a lease agreement. So on a on a tower or small cell, the customer enters into a you know, five, 10, 15 year lease agreement with us. That lease agreement is like any other lease. Uh, back 30 years ago, we structured it just like a, an office lease. We said, here's your demise premises, here's the tenant build out, and then you sign a long-term lease with us and we're your landlord. So a lot of the the skills that I learned going to Wharton and, and you know, attending the Zell-Lurie Real Estate Center, we applied that to digital. We said, look, at the end of the day, it's a space, right? It's a space lease. And there's a certain amount of equipment they're going to put in place. And that's kind of how the, the digital leasing business began, was just applying traditional real estate principles to technology. And we do that today in our fiber business. We do that today in our data center businesses and our cell tower businesses.
1: And, and if you took it to real estate, you would assume AT&T one of the largest carriers probably at Madison Square Garden, most of the people are using AT&T as opposed to like Boost Mobile. What AT&T, are they signing, I guess, a bigger lease since they're going to have more customers on it than call it like a Boost that's smaller? Like how do you gauge, especially 15 years out, that Boost Mobile doesn't become some enormous company where, you know, who knows what the future holds, but they become, more fans are using Boost than AT&T, but when it started, it was reversed.
0: So Boost runs on another person's network. It doesn't even run on, they don't have their own spectrum, they don't have their radios. They buy capacity on other people's networks. And so so that's kind of the first sort of salvo of that. Same thing with like a Cricket or Metro PCS. Those are brands below T-Mobile and below AT&T that are more value oriented brands. But at the end of the day, those networks now run on other people's networks so they have a wholesale agreement with a you know a mobile like Metro you know Metro PCS is a subsidiary of T-Mobile where Cricket is a subsidiary of AT&T and so you've got these situations where you have the, the high end product which is Verizon's product or AT&T or T-Mobile's product and then you have these prepaid products which are also very convenient light contract light touch on the contract you don't get the fancy iPhone 15 Maybe sometimes you do if you want to pay a little more, but there's different value points in the ecosystem. But ultimately in the U.S. mobile market, our big three customers are really T-Mobile Verizon, AT&T, and now now DISH Networks. DISH is now starting to build their own private, you know, their their own uh, public 5G network.
1: Okay. And in a previous episode that you were on, you kind of said that the chessboard changes every seven years. And so my question is kind of, what have been the major inflection points over the last 29 years? I can think of like mobile, 5G, maybe social media, AI. As you look back, like what have been the massive inflection points along the way?
0: Yeah, look, I think probably the uh, the biggest catalyst for me was probably that that jump from kind of analog to digital in 96. We had that first jump in a digital PCS. I would say... Another catalyst was the Telecom Reform Act of 97 when the U.S. government opened up, you know, the wireline infrastructure and anybody could go compete and become a competitive local exchange carrier was really the breakup of the, the Bell monopoly. That was huge. The ability to create competition and to allow the cable companies to go into voice communications, that changed the entire landscape of, you know, fiber, Internet to the home and cable TV. And vice versa, the, the guys that had the copper and fiber lines could go into cable TV and could go provide you know TV service. So th- that was another game changer. I think you know, a lot of people don't talk about the advent of the cloud, but in 2013, when sort of public cloud got launched, that was a big deal. Cloud computing has really changed a lot of things, but it's changed the way that you and I communicate. It's created this portal where you and I are having this conversation it completely changed retail. You could argue that it decimated retail, or you could argue that it disintermediated retail, but one thing that probably both you and I could agree on, it it changed retail. The internet has completely changed how we, we shop, how we conduct commerce. And now as we move into AI, I can tell you it's probably right up there, if not the biggest step change in how we're gonna conduct business and how fast we're gonna go. And ultimately, you know, initial language-based models don't do much for you and me today, but as those models start learning and they become intuitive and we move into inference, generative AI is a big deal because in generative AI, you start to get enterprise-based applications that start doing the thinking. And that move from language-based models into inference is really huge. And so I think there's gonna be a big change and ultimately, software systems. Software systems are going to be a lot faster, a lot more intuitive, I think you're going to see a huge change in IoT networks. So the ability to take the Internet of Things and then go out and weaponize it for autonomous vehicles and public safety and, and all these applications that are going to come through generative AI, you and I can't even think of all these applications that are coming. But guess what, Chris, they're coming, right? They're coming and they're going to change our lives. And so It's going to change the way you drive home. It's going to change how you go grocery shopping. You know, your house is going to tell you everything that's wrong with it. You know, in two to three years, you'll have a full diagnostics kit for your house where you won't have to guess what's wrong with your thermostat. You won't have to guess what's wrong with your internet. You know, AI is going to help you predict when those what are called pattern recognition moments happen. So it's scary. It's exciting. It is the most transformative thing I've seen in my 30 years doing this. And I thought the public cloud was kind of the big catalyst. But now as we move from public cloud into, into this AI realm, I know for one, we're really busy because we're building a lot of the AI infrastructure. We're building the data centers that power AI. We're building the fiber cabling that delivers that AI infrastructure. So it's been a fantastic, you know, 18 months for our business because we're tasked with being the, the axes and the shovels for this next generation of infrastructure. So it's pretty exciting.
1: Let's talk about data centers, in and, and we can start with just continuing on the AI. Will they be built differently? I guess we definitely need more capacity, but are there other ways that this infrastructure plays out differently in the AI world than there was before, besides just capacity needs?
0: So, yeah, the answer, the, the short answer is yes. There has been changes to the way we design data centers, the way we build them, the way we operate them. The biggest change. So far, has been power. So, the amount of power that comes into an AI data center against a sort of a cloud based hyperscale data center, the power is much bigger. So, you know, AI servers, particularly these NVIDIA, you know, new servers that are out there, they're consuming, you know, three to four X more power than a traditional cloud server. So, AI is very power hungry. That's one theme you got to know. So, we're consuming more power. So, we're designing the data center differently. Because we're putting more power density into a smaller location, so you're getting slightly smaller data centers with more power with different servers, and then ultimately, you know they've got to be super secure. So security is now at a premium. Backup power is at a premium. The providers of these, you know, artificial intelligence networks, they can't afford to have the power go down, right? As you can imagine, it just it just can't happen. So. There's a lot of pressure to create kind of the data center of the future that is not gonna be susceptible to, uh, to loss of power. And that can obviously continue to keep going if the power goes down, but more power into a denser area and then more fiber. You need more connectivity, you need bigger pipes to deliver these applications. So everything's a little bigger, right? The power requirements are bigger, the fiber connectivity requirements are bigger, Initially, where they're built isn't a huge deal. You don't have to have an AI data center in downtown New York. You can put the initial big language-based model AI data centers in places like Ohio, right? Atlanta, Georgia, Dallas, Texas. But you don't see these guys building these big AI data centers in Connecticut or Los Angeles or, you know, Menlo Park. Reno, Nevada is a hot AI data center location. Why? Land is cheap, power is cheap, and there's a bunch of it. And you're very close to Silicon Valley from Reno, so that's become one of the hot, you know, hot data center markets.
1: So, is that when you're talking about a data center location? Obviously, you need access to affordable power. One hundred percent. You need cheaper land. Is there anything else that goes into a a great data center location? I know Virginia is hot. Texas is starting to see a lot of them. Anything else that goes into what makes a great data center location?
0: I think it depends what you're trying to do, right? So if you're trying to build public cloud, private cloud, AI, or you're building out edge computing, those are all very different requirements. I think one of the things that people don't have a deep appreciation for, Chris, is that the data center sector actually is six industries wrapped up into one industry. So we call it the data center industry. But believe it or not, there's actually six different business models inside the sector. And so you've got, you know, at the low end of the stack, you've got managed IT, which is like traditional, like a Rackspace who will, you're a small company and you need someone to host your information for you. You go to a managed IT provider and they'll outsource all that for you. And so that's that's one business model. You then move into what's called hybrid cloud, where you've got a little bit of managed services, but you that that same managed services provider creates your own private cloud. You can keep your own data super secure. And so we call that business model hybrid cloud. Then, as you move further up the value chain, you get into enterprise data centers. And so those are co-location facilities where you have different corporations putting their servers into a location that's highly connected with fiber with interconnection that goes back out and allows an enterprise to proliferate what's called a spread network. So that's enterprise. Then you've got the fourth vertical is edge data centers. So these are really data centers in tier two and tier three markets, where basically the cloud guys are building out their the kind of next phase of their network deployments. So this is staying away from Virginia, staying away from Texas, staying away from Atlanta, staying away from Reno, but going into smaller cities like Cleveland and Pittsburgh or Kansas City or Salt Lake City, where a lot of these cloud guys are starting to proliferate their workloads because they need to be closer to the customers, industrial users. So that's edge. The fifth vertical is hyperscale, which are these big public cloud campuses and big AI data centers. So think 200 megawatt campuses, 400 to 800,000 square feet of space. These are big data centers. And these are really the data centers that fuel the cloud. And then the toughest vertical is the last one, which is private cloud. So the level of security there is called tier five. There's literally no downtime. The data center never goes down. And these are Fortune 100 customers and government agencies that demand the highest security and the highest reliability. So the rents are a lot higher, right? Because you're getting super value-add services, but you're also really secure. And you know your data's secure. And so for government agencies that are seeking, you know, data sovereignty, this is a really popular business model. We own the largest private cloud data center business in the United States. We bought. We bought that business a little over a year ago because we thought we thought private cloud was going to blow up, and we were right. We've grown EBITDA by about forty percent in one year. It's actually one of the hottest verticals in the data center space today. Is is private cloud, and we own the largest private cloud computing business called Switch, which is based in Las Vegas.
1: And all of those business models really rely on the size of the business using the product. Like you kind of move up chain the larger your business gets, or is there any other reason why you would bounce between we any scale? Yeah.
0: Right? You, you scale into that IT stack. And you know eventually when you hit kind of the fifth leg, a lot of big companies say, hey, I want to go public cloud. I actually want to move all this stuff out to AWS or I want to move it out to Microsoft because I don't want to be in the business of owning data centers. And I don't want to be in the business of having to manage multiple locations where if I'm in public cloud, all I need is a connection to the internet and I've got access to my data.
1: Do Amazon and Microsoft own the cloud? Is there room for others or is they pretty much have it wrapped down?
0: They've done a pretty good job. I think Google would have a say about that as well. But I think as it relates to the public cloud, you've got to say that, you know, AWS and and Google really dominate, and Microsoft, you know, has also done a very good job from a cloud perspective, but they really are super focused on the enterprise and dominating sort of corporate America. You know, from Outlook to Teams, to relationship software, those are all the things that Microsoft is doing where Amazon is potentially, you know, more commercially minded and focused on getting you as a customer and winning your
1: house. I read somewhere that, I guess my question is how far out can these companies see their demand for data storage? I've, I read something that said even the biggest companies can't even predict what their data will be a year or two years out. Is that still true today or are they pretty, could, do they have like a 10 year outlook on how they'll, how much data they'll need?
0: I think every time that, I'm just talking about my company, every time we try to predict where we're gonna be in 10 years, we look up in two years and we've doubled the amount of data we thought we'd have in 10. So, you know, one could say, you know, eventually Moore's law takes effect in effect at some point on this, but we haven't seen that, right? And the reason for that, is not so much that you know, we're creating a lot of documents or writing a lot of emails. The big consumer of data right now is, is applications. So whatever as, a, as an organization, if we're running Oracle, we're running Salesforce, we're running Microsoft Teams, those applications are living and breathing. And as our employees spend more time on those applications, as you can guess, we're consuming more data a lot more data. And it seems to have an exponential growth factor. It's not linear. It's sort of exponentially linear as you add more users, and more importantly, as you use the applications. So the more my team uses Salesforce, the more the accounting team uses Oracle, and the more we as a firm use Teams to collaborate, All that happens is exponentially we keep taking up more and more data.
1: This is a dumb question, but let's say you have a 20-year company and the data from 20 years ago, while it's still stored, it's probably not as relevant today as the data being created today. For the sake of a company that's saving data, is there a value weighted on like the more recent data that it takes up larger capacity and it's cheaper to store the data from 20 years ago, or is all data equal?
0: Well, it depends on your document retention policy at the firm. You know, you have to decide what you're going to do there. So, we generally we only keep things for we we only keep stuff for about a year. So that keeps our data storage pretty pretty small. And so, when I say we keep it for a year, that's really instant messaging, emails, whatever the SEC tells us to keep, we keep. Now, that's on the on the documentation and email side. Now on the actual due diligence and models and IC memos and all the things that we use to run our business, that goes on to a private cloud. And we would never delete that because those are corporate records. And so it really comes down to, what is your head of IT gonna do? What is your CIO gonna do? What's the policy? What's the document retention policy? And that's ultimately gonna define how much data you're gonna end up storing. Now, if it's a live application, Chris, I want it as close to my office as possible, right? We call that, you know, on-prem. We want it to be as close to the premises as possible. If it's like a series of like documents from a loan closing or something, and I don't need it like this, I can go put it in Iceland if I need to, right? And if it takes me five seconds to download it or two seconds, I'm okay with that latency of two seconds. And if it's an application, I need the application to make a decision in one tenth of a second. There's just a different level of intimacy in terms of the data.
1: So they say, like, you once, if I were to get on like Twitter or something, something I tweeted 12 years ago, that Twitter's still holding the data. It's obviously my tweet or any content I put out still there. But are they storing it the same way? Are they storing what they would consider older stuff in like cheaper locations? Or is all, like again, all data points are created equal no matter when it was posted to Twitter?
0: No, definitely the older the data is that they can shift that data, they can move it. They can move it to a data storage location in North Dakota. It just depends what they want to do at the end of the day.
1: Okay, y'all do, it looks like you do value add digital and then core plus, is that within the, the data center realm or is that across all verticals?
0: Well, look, for us, value add investing is our bread and butter. So that's you know, traditional infrastructure, high teens, low twenties returns, own a business for five to 10 years, go buy something and then go build it. So, you know, build a great management team, finance it the correct way, and grow it for, for ultimate harvesting. And so that's value add. Core stuff for us or core plus is if I've got like 2,000 cell towers in Germany and I've got a 30-year non-breakable lease with Deutsche Telekom, that's about as core as core gets, right? Then I know it's going to it's gonna have a 4 to 6% accretion uh, based on the escalator and incremental antennas, but also know the things that cash on cash winner. And it's a dividend yield play. And so some investors, Chris, want that, right? They want safety and they want yield. And they want to know that they can come back and know that in 20 years, that, that lease with Deutsche Telecom is going to be in place. Some people like value-add investing and say, look, I want you to go buy a residential fiber business you know, in the United States that's got 2% churn. It's got 79 ARPU. And the weighted average contracted cash flows are year to year that's a different risk profile. Now, if we run it correctly and we exit it correctly, you know we can go get a mid-20s to high-20s IRR, but it's not core plus, right? I'm not sitting there taking the dividends and, and running it off over time. So there's you the know, same, same industries, which is digital infrastructure, just different return profile, different risk tolerance, and different duration of cash flows.
1: What's ARPU mean?
0: Revenue per user.
1: Got it. So is it similar to cell towers though? Like if Amazon needs a data center, are they usually coming to y'all saying, hey, we need a data center and we need your expertise to show us how big it needs to be, where it needs to go? Or is a lot of it spec building and build it and they will come?
0: Most of it is, um, I'd say 90% of our development today in data centers is with, not only with a customer telling us where they're gonna go, but with a customer lease already executed. So we'll do a certain amount of work for site selection, but once the customer commits a location, they sign a lease, then we go, and we go with everything.
1: And because things are evolving so rapidly, I imagine these projects take multiple years from the time you hear from them to the time it's open. There's situations where, I'm not saying it's obsolete, but the finished product is, is, the world's moved so far in three years that the finished product like would have been different to keep up with the current time. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Well, there's this whole notion of functional obsolescence versus whether you can continue to upgrade something and have it work, right? Every asset in our business has a functional life and then it has an accounting life. And sometimes the accounting life and the functional life don't match up. So for example, like a cell tower has an accounting life of 30 years. Well, clearly cell towers are built to last longer. They're steel. You know, a data center has an accounting life of like 10 years. But if a, if a contract, if, if, you know, every six, seven years, the technology is changing and the leases are shorter than that, you could argue that the financial life of that asset might be shorter than the physical obsolescence of that asset. So you're kind of matching, you know, the cash flows with the technology curve and then ultimately the physical deterioration of that asset. Like a data center in 25 years might deteriorate. It's real estate. It's a physical building. Whereas cell tower, if it's a if it's a steel pole, you know, and it's sitting on I ninety five, you know, somewhere outside of Georgia, where the weather's pretty relaxed, that tower should, in theory, should stay longer than twenty five to thirty years.
1: So we have all these data centers. How, how do you think about it from a standpoint of we need more data centers versus? If servers get smaller and they can hold more capacity, that we'll be actually be able to host more capacity within existing data centers rather than having to build new.
0: So what's unique about our pricing model now is we don't price on the physical rack. So if somebody drops a server in, we used to price that and say, "Okay, that's 900 dollars a month, that's 1200 dollars a month." It's not how we do it anymore. The way we do it now is based on power consumption. And the reason I did that is because, look, if a server gets more efficient, Chris, and it gets smaller, but you're still conducting the same amount of commerce from that server, I should get paid for that, right? So, but what happens is as more data moves through a server, there is something that does happen. It consumes more power. And so what we do is our lease, the demise premises for a a cloud-based player, isn't the number of servers they drop on the floor, but rather it's the total amount of power they consume.
1: Got it. So it's kind of a variable, like the lease might look like a variable rate lease over time as they're consuming more power, their lease payments go up.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: How long are those leases traditionally, like 10, 15 years?
0: Exactly. You nailed it. 10 to 15 years.
1: And who's responsible for the server and maybe the actual cyber security of it versus the physical security of it, just making sure nobody breaks in and and steals it? The
0: server is the property of the customer. They own it, they install it. We put a little cage around their equipment, lock the door, they have a retinal scanner, they have a key code or a thumb code. And so everything outside that server belongs to us, which is the security... The cooling the power and so we have an obligation to provide Amazon with the best experience they can get right and if we don't do a good job they don't come back to us so we're laser focused on making sure that they have a great customer experience but ultimately they own the server if the server breaks that's on them if the data center breaks that's on me which is the cooling the connectivity the security so I provide all that I provide everything you know, but the server. And there may come a time like where we do decide, you know, we want to own the server for the customer and we go further up the value chain, right? And we go ask for more rent.
1: When you think of fiber, let's say it's laid in the ground and the technology of fiber continues to get better and better. Do you have to replace existing fiber every time there's a technology enhancement or are there ways to enhance the current fiber that's in the ground?
0: Remember, a fiber optic cabling is just it's an op, it's it's glass, right? And so all we're doing is we provide the conduit, we provide the number of pairs, and if it's a dark fiber route, the customer's lighting it, we don't light it. We're literally just the train tracks. And so on that basis, it does help the business become a little more future-proof. And I'd say the upgrade cycle on those particular routes, they have a useful life, just like a cell tower. It's very interesting. It's about a 25-year useful life for the, for the fiber optic cabling.
1: Knowing that a lot of it comes down to power, we're going to have all these, I'm sure you get this question, we're going to have a lot of empty office buildings sitting around the country. Are a lot of them going to be candidates for data centers or not really because the power is not there?
0: That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but I think the biggest issue in data center land today, Chris, is power. And our, as you know, our transmission infrastructure grids in the US are, are aging. Most of the transmission was built in the Eisenhower era. So then here we are asking these transmission grids to deliver hundreds of megawatts of power to a 10 acre parcel. That's not what was envisioned 60 years ago. I don't think the United States has a generation issue. We're generating plenty of power, whether it's hydro, solar, wind, or traditional, you know, coal-fired plants or nuclear plants. We know how to generate power. We just don't know how to move it and distribute it and transmit it in the right way. So that's why you see, you know, like what ERCOT's doing in Texas, redoing the entire, you know, transmission infrastructure grid. It's what you see in Dominion Resources, what's happening in Virginia, what's happening in California Was with uh, PG&E and SoCal Edison having to dig their lines and build new lines. So we're going through this renaissance per se of our transmission infrastructure, and it's just gonna take time. It's gonna take time. So in the meantime, you know, as an industry, that have, as someone who's the largest owner of data centers in, in I think the world now, we're very focused on energy independence. And so everything we're doing right now is towards that. Whether we're building solar power, whether we're building wind, whether we're buying hydro, whatever we're doing, we're trying to figure out how to get behind the meter and not have to be subject to the existing infrastructure of the U.S. or Europe or Latin America.
1: Do you even think about the rise of electric vehicles and just the allocation of energy they're going to take up as it relates to what might be available for for data centers, or is that kind of a blip on the radar?
0: my, My estimation is that if I'm thinking... About the future and how much power data centers are taking off the grid and how much electric cars are taking off the grid, I think in three to four years our transmission infrastructure runs out of power. So the same problems that you're seeing in Northern California, the same problems you saw in the Northeast with Mohawk Power and Pacific Gas and Electric, where you're gonna start having brownouts and you're gonna to have to turn off the grid, that's a real problem. Right, and that's not ten years away. You talk to some people, and that's three to four years away, just given the demands of the grid, the electrification of of the automobile industry, the movement towards AI, and how much power is being spent on on data centers, and maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic about that, but even if it's four or five years away, we still have a problem, right?
1: Well, could you see like politicians or government being like, "Hey, tech companies, sorry, you can't." Store all this data anymore, it's more important that power goes to people's houses and they can, you know, use basic power needs instead of saving the, the next YouTube video on YouTube.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think politicians are thinking that way right now. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I'm giving them
0: credit. Um, Look, I would tell you that certainly Glenn Youngkin and Mark Warner are thinking about it. You know, after Virginia ran out of power and the data center industry is one of the great producers of jobs and tax income for the state of Virginia. Young prioritized that. So did Mark Warner and they got in and, you know, instead of waiting five to six years to upgrade their transmission infrastructure, they're doing it in two years now. So they've really prioritized that because they know if they don't fix the grid, Virginia stops hiring jobs and tax rolls go down and, and, you know, the government ends up having a, you know, a real problem on their hands. And Virginia is one of the, the great states that's really benefited from cloud computing because of Amazon's location there and the amount of, you know, data centers that exist in data center alley. But this is going to be a continuing dialogue. You and know, I'll be talking about this for the next three to four
1: years. And, and you've mentioned AI, but is is crypto putting any dent in the space is, or is it not near the impact of AI?
0: Not really. It's it's nothing near AI. I mean, we, we own one of the largest crypto mines in Europe and we sold it. We sold it, you know, right at the beginning of COVID. We didn't think crypto was sustainable. The data centers were consuming a lot of power. Crypto consumes a lot of power. And ultimately, these were data centers located in Iceland. So we didn't really have a huge desire to want to keep them. And we'd grown EBITDA by like 200%. So somebody came to us and said, you know, we want to own crypto infrastructure. We said, great, here, take it, <laughs> and you know. We sold the business for like 28 times EBIT and we made five times our money. I love it. But we knew it was a trade. It was a simple two-year trade for us. And it was all based on, on crypto hype and momentum. And I don't believe in investing in hype. And if I have a business that's that's being built off of future expectations and is trading in the 20s, and we don't have long-term contracts with customers, then I'm an easy seller every day of the week.
1: Getting back real quick to just cybersecurity, it's it's obviously we are told kind of year after year it's a huge threat and it's it's more of a threat. Again, y'all y'all secure the physical aspects of the location. It's on the company to manage their own cybersecurity, correct? Or is there anything yes, that falls in your absolutely in, okay? And since you're just in this world, like, do you have any comments on how we're doing as a country around cybersecurity? Uh, Obviously, it's a huge threat, but I'm assuming we have really talented people working on it.
0: I I think you have to assume that we have extremely, extremely talented people working on it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the cyber attacks that you do hear are basically, you're you're hearing about 1% of the cyber attacks. And every day, you know, just in, in our network, in our own small digital bridge network, we're absolutely getting targeted every day. We probably have dozens of cyber attacks on our network every day. Welcome to the world of being a CIO today or a CTO. You know, it's just protect the fort at all costs. Because the last thing you want to do is go to your CEO's office and say, we've got a ransom letter for $2 million and we got we to gotta pay tomorrow or else we lose all our data.
1: Is there any, there's no magic bullet kind of like cryptos is, is un, they say it's unpenetrable because of the algorithm. There's or
0: blockchain, I mean, blockchain the keeps blockchain. crypto safe. No, there's no magic bullet to save people from hacking.
1: Does everything just move on to the blockchain or is that kind of a, a sound good line, but it's not really going to happen.
0: I think that's a, that's the feel good version of SportsCenter. I don't think that really happens.
1: When you think about the Middle East and Asia, which, which you all own a lot, is the business ran the same way over there in America or is it a lot different, more the Wild West?
0: No, I think, look, Asia's been a great surprise for us in the last three years. I think that we see things that are happening in Asia that are actually, candidly, from a, from a digital perspective, more progressive than the US. So we see a regulatory regime that's, that's pretty open in a lot of these countries we see a lot of underinvestment you know the us has been investing in digital infrastructure for decades and in asia you know they're probably one cycle behind which is we see parts of asia about 3 to 5 years behind in terms of infrastructure build europe is europe is always a laggard economy to the us except in the nordics where infrastructure is really progressive and modern and i think one of the more intriguing regions in the world today is the gcc I mean, when you look across the Gulf, you see, you know, economies that are, that are leveling up based on digital, you know, the fastest growing social media markets and YouTube markets in the world are Saudi Arabia, you know, in the UAE. These are companies that have embraced digital transformation. They're moving really fast. And the younger demographics in those countries are, are using digital as a means to start pulling the economy and pulling culture into more of a Western what I would call democracy-driven economy or capitalism-driven economies. And so those those countries really get it and they're very progressive and they're investing heavily in digital. So when we show up in the GCC or we show up in Asia, those are markets for us that are working really well because they're embracing digital transformation. And to get there, you need the infrastructure. And so it makes it a good investable area for us. And, and also from a fundraising perspective, you know, the Asian pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, along with the Gulf, you know, sovereign wealth funds, they have a lot of money. And they're they're under-allocated. You know, from an asset allocation decision, looking at their pie, they've traditionally been in fixed income, public equities, and a little bit of private equity. And now these these sovereign wealth funds are getting really sophisticated, and now they're doing much bigger allocations to digital and to infrastructure and to into into private markets and so. What I'm finding is when I travel and I'm fundraising for what we're doing, I find that our biggest opportunity to form new capital is today is really in Asia and the Middle East.
1: And some people lump it in with real estate. Real estate's obviously had a challenging fundraising environment the last, call it 18 months. Does digital real estate kind of follow that trend line or is it is it different? People think about it totally differently.
0: Totally differently. Why? Because the returns are there, right? And the growth is there. So Unlike traditional commercial real estate, which has been declining, you know, rent rolls coming down, rents coming down and occupancy coming down. Let's go to digital, flip the script, right? Occupancies are up, growth is up and rental rates are up. So just in one year alone, data center rents have moved up 21%. Our occupancy is up 80% year over year, 80%. Chris, I've been doing this 30 years. That's never happened in my life where any of our businesses have been up from an occupancy perspective, 80%. So we deployed seven and a half billion of CapEx last year into our data center businesses. We own six different companies around the world that do this. And we just finished our budget planning season two weeks ago. And we're going to deploy 12.9 billion of CapEx next year. 7.5 to 12.9 billion of new CapEx. It's, It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning.
1: And is the answer to that increase in demand, obviously AI is coming and just people are using digital products more and more in the globe, America, we've been on it for a while, but the rest of the globe is just continuing to get more and more online? The
0: rest of the globe is catching up. That's, that's the key. I mean, that's the key headline. Um, like we said, in, in Asia and in, um, in the Middle East, they're just now building cloud infrastructure. We were doing that 10 years ago. So, you know, cloud adaptation is moving really fast in those regions. And AI will move just as fast. So we're we're really busy. We're extremely busy.
1: And did you see anything coming out of COVID? Was there a permanent shift also out of COVID that drove this or accelerated it?
0: I think the thing that COVID taught us was that the digital infrastructure in the suburbs and in the secondary and tertiary markets was wildly insufficient. So we spent a lot of time in COVID building out edge computing, and we we spent more time fortifying, you know, broadband networks to the home because there wasn't enough fiber sitting out in the suburbs. And so we had to increase connectivity issues. We had to grow the cloud. We had to proliferate the cloud. And so COVID was all about spreading networks further and wider and ultimately to perform at a really, really high level, which historically networks in rural areas and secondary and tertiary markets have not performed well.
1: It all sounds like really bullish. I guess my last question to the extent you can answer is there's some people some of the prolific short sellers have have been bearish like what is their case against digital that could be rationally taken seriously?
0: Look, when 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 I merged my company with a, another public company and we 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 sort of reverse merged into and when, an when old real estate investment trust called Colony Capital. We had an activist shareholder that was trying to short us. And I said, look, I said, you don't get it. Digital real estate is what is actually making real estate obsolete. You know, the big disintermediator to malls and to office buildings is the stuff that we do. And so anyone who is going to short digital infrastructure, short digital rates, you really got to know what you're doing. We ran into this guy that was shorting the data center space, and I won't name his name specifically, except I've never named his name specifically. I just ran my own race and said, "Look, if that guy wants to spend third- party investor capital shorting me, it's a bad run. he's He's not going to win because what we've been able to do is we've been able to grow our assets under management from fourteen billion to seventy five billion in three and a half years. We sold $50 billion of commercial real estate. We rotated into $75 billion of digital. And at the same time, we delevered the company from, you know, $14 billion of debt to $330 million of debt. So the short thesis on us was that we were going to choke on our capital stack. We didn't have a plan to delever, And we were going to get stuck with all this old real estate while we pivoted to digital. Well, we just went fast. We went faster than everyone expected. And then the, the other short thesis on us, on, on the sector, was just that we're a competitor to Amazon and Microsoft, and again, just naive thinking right I'm the landlord to them I'm their partner. I' have no interest in being in their business, but I have a huge interest in facilitating the growth of their business and making sure that their networks stay up and stay reliable and providing them with fiber and providing them with new ideas and we've had we've had customer relationships, Chris, for thirty years i've had the privilege of maintaining networks for you know, Verizon and AT&T for three decades now, T-Mobile for three decades. These are long-lived customer relationships that are built on trust and the fact that we run their networks for them. We help build their networks for them. And that isn't something you can, you can accomplish overnight. It takes decades of experience to get there. Now you can ruin it in one night by having the network go down, but we don't do that. And ultimately, the short thesis on data centers failed because no one... No one had done the homework around cloud adaptation, the growth of public cloud, private cloud, and AI at the same time. And it was the perfect storm. It was a perfect tsunami for growth. And at the same time, everything that you and I just talked about, the aging transmission grid, there's not enough power. So the existing data centers that are built are in great locations. They have power. They have the ability to serve the customer, which is why rents moved up 21% in one year. So you have this amazing demand and supply, trade, and balance, right? The supply being the data centers, the demand being the cloud players and the AI providers. And these guys have a bigger appetite than what the industry can deliver. So that's why rents have moved, you know, have moved up in, you know, consecutively for seven straight quarters. A lot going on here. Really exciting. A lot of fun. I'm sure someone won't think of a way to, to short us again. But
1: <laughs> not me. it's a
0: bad bet. It's a bad bet right now. Right now, it's a very bad bet.
1: Mark, this was awesome. I really, really appreciate your time today. This was, this really was a treat.
0: Yeah, for me as well, Chris. Thank you.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.